Hello, this is Tom Pasello, the ROI Guy, and welcome to the Evolvers Podcast, sponsored by sales enablement platform provider, Mediafly. Our mission, to provide you with the independent insights, community advice, and tools to guide your sales enablement journey and fuel your professional evolution. My guest today is Spencer Wixom. He is the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Challenger, which was acquired and spun out from Gartner two years ago. Prior to Challenger, Spencer was a product line and consulting leader with CEB. And for those of you who don't know the corporate executive board, they were the original creators of the Challenger sale. He is here to share some just amazing new Challenger buyer research and important go forward advice. So Evolvers, please a warm welcome for Spencer Wixom. Hey, thanks for having me on, Tom. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So I mentioned the research. You recently published some findings from your new buyer survey. What is the state of buying today? It's a great question. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background. So when we first did the original challenger study, one of the first things we looked at was buyers, buyers in a complex B2B environment and got an understanding of them back then. And that's when we first identified that idea of sales experience being that number one driver of customer loyalty, uh, more so than you know product, more so than price, more so than um, service and delivery and things like that. But we wanted to, particularly in this post-COVID environment, we wanted to understand you know, how are buyers feeling today? Mm-hmm. It was interesting because buyers are feeling very different today in the way they think and in the way they act than they have been even the last few years. So let me give you just a couple of statistics from our Uh, pulse update on our buyer study to give you an idea of that. So first of all, over 75% of buying groups uh, that we talked to, they're reviewing all outstanding purchase requests. So they're really looking closely at everything the organization is buying or doing. Over 50% are reprioritizing spend across all categories. So not only are they taking a close look at everything individually, they're also evaluating, you know, and prioritizing Mm -hmm. certain things above others. And then thirdly, and this is about 40%, just under 40% have put a purchasing freeze for anything deemed non-essential. So they're really taking a look at all of these different um, elements of spend. They're prioritizing what, um, what needs to be upfront versus not. And then a lot of organizations are saying, hey, look, if we can't classify it as essential to make a purchase, then we're not going to go forward with it. So that's a whole lot of additional analysis, complexity, concern that these buying groups are having with opportunities and things we might want to sell them. Yeah. And we've seen that um, in our clients, even us personally, where it's taking a lot longer to get through these buying groups. Um, There seems to be more people than ever involved in the decision, including the rise of what I call the COVID committee to do the evaluation, (laughs) right? Yeah. The cross-functional team that's reviewing these things and saying, Hey, does this fit our priorities? So we're definitely seeing that. And, you know, a lot of companies have put in place spending freezes until they have maybe a little bit more certainty and clarity. So who can blame them? Right. And, and, and I really do think you need to focus on that idea of being essential. And the way you're essential is if you can prove that what you have to offer has a material effect on the performance of the business. It's a need to have, not a nice to have. Yeah. And I think any smart buying group out there knows that transformation 
is absolutely required in their business one way or the other. And they will be making investments, but you have to be properly positioned to make sure you're getting those dollars in this new set of priorities, correct? Exactly. And, and understand, you know, so to speak, where that puck is going and be able to prove relevance as it relates to, you know, where they're trying to go. I think the point you just made is a very important one that uh, a lot of what they're going to prioritize and spend on is a true transformation to put, like, to get themselves set up for whatever this new post 2020 economy is going to be. And if you can't like show yourself relative to that, if you're more something that they did as part of a previous status quo, then you're going to struggle to get their attention. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that the key there is the Wayne Gretzky quote that you mentioned briefly, you know, skate to where the puck is going, not where the puck is. Well, exactly. And and point their way toward that as well. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think, in, uh, in our conversation, but um, really try to critically think about where are they going and what are they missing in that journey as a way to position yourself. Yeah. And so the two things I, got, I took away there is make sure that you're aligning with those new priorities clearly and the priorities of where they want to go. And then two, make sure that you're justified into that buying group, correct? That, that I think is another key point that you're making. Exactly. And what's interesting, I think, is, is you all have, you, you have to think about how uh, this feeds into the experience that you're creating with them right? It, you, you may have that knowledge, you may have that understanding or those ideas for that customer. But if you're not presenting them as part of a powerful experience today, then you're not going to get much of anywhere. Completely agree. Now, you took a look at not just buying groups, but I know the characteristics of an individual buyer, because the buying group does have a lot of power within the organization, but there's a lot of personal connection too, and individual buyers within that group have their own struggles. Well, they do. And they look at the people who are selling to them in a very interesting way today. And, and that was one of the most shocking findings, I think, of, of what we looked at. So we asked these individual buyers. Uh, first of all, we, we did a, a pulse on this research back in 2019. And we were interested in two things. We, number one, wanted to understand which characteristics of sellers Mm -hmm. are most important to buyers? What do they want to see from the sellers who call on them? But secondly, we wanted to understand how often and to what degree of quality do you see those particular characteristics? So you can kind of think about those as two axes. Then when we redid the study again in 2020, the, the things that were important before continued to be important. So buyers had the same perspective of, this is what I want to see from sellers. Mm -hmm. What was concerning is the movement the shift toward not seeing it, not a high degree of quality of those same skills. So while they said the same things are important to us as were before, we're not seeing it from sellers anymore like we were even just a year or two before. All right, so before we, yeah, before oh, we dig into the gaps that um, it highlighted, talk about what, what are those um, characteristics that make for a good seller in the buyer's eyes? Yeah, so there's there's five that I like to talk about. Uh, number one is this idea of demonstrating unique insight. And this mm -hmm. is something or perspective. And we've talked about this for years, right? Bringing that customer some piece of knowledge, an idea, a perspective about their business that they haven't before considered. 
Secondly, is helping buyers make decisions, mm -hmm. um, you know, working with them through that decision-making process. Uh, number three is your understanding of the interests and the needs of various stakeholders in that buying group. Buying groups are becoming larger. They're becoming more diverse. If you don't understand what each of the members of that buying group are interested in and tailor your message to their particular interests or find a common thread that brings them all together, mm -hmm. then you're gonna struggle to get that consensus and get that deal moving forward. Number four is helping buyers build support in the organization. So again, you can help individuals make decisions, but you also have to help individuals generate consensus and build support in the buying group and even outside the buying group with other stakeholders uh, who also have to buy into this. And then finally, it's making it easy for the buyer to buy, understand the journey that they're going through, all of the check steps, particularly those check steps that might be new uh, to this environment. Again, all of those filters that organizations are now putting into their spend. How do you make it easy for them to make go, no go decisions and, and give them that certainty uh, to, to take action? Now, when you first did the, the original challenger research, were these the same five criteria or have they changed? I, no, I know I, that I mean, the it, insights was definitely a big part of it. And one that um, I know I, I've leveraged in my own selling and in recommendations for clients and the tailoring of the message certainly is it was a key component of Challenger. But this aspect of helping and facilitating and um helping the buyer make sense of it all is definitely something that I think is a little bit more newer or at least amplified nowadays. Yeah, it, 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 there has been an evolution in the idea of Challenger since, since its origin. So one of the, the foundational concepts, you're absolutely right, that really came out in the original study that we did is this idea of commercial insight, teaching mm -hmm. the customer something new. And those foundational four skills or characteristics that we identified in that study, right? The teaching, you hear those in, in these particular characteristics that I listed here, teaching mm -hmm. being one, taking control, right? Is We didn't have a, as clear a definition of it back then as we have now, but we understood that you need to uh, work with and support that uh, buyer or that buying group through that decision-making process, tailoring, making sure you're thinking about the common thread that brings them all together and builds consensus. And you're, you know, thinking about the diversity of stakeholders. And then this idea that uh, we uncovered of constructive tension, right? Of It's not only bringing a, a teaching, a commercial insight, but understanding the effect that that insight has on that buyer or that buying group to motivate them to action. They feel the, uh, the weight of status quo and they see that new way or that new direction as, as relieving that weight. You need that kind of tension or uh, motivation in your commercial conversation. Yeah, to bust through that status quo bias, right? Which is gonna weigh them back and hold them back. Exactly. So that, that's kind of the foundation from the original study. But what's been interesting as time has gone on is we've seen and established the importance or the gravity of certain elements of that. So the mm -hmm. story has become more nuanced. You mentioned the idea of sense-making. And that's what I love about this concept of sense-making that, uh, that Gartner has introduced in recent years, is this idea that um, you know there's a lot of content coming at 
these buying groups and these individual buyers? And how do you sit down with them and help them truly understand which elements of this content are important to consider, which are less important to consider? You know, you're communicating to them, you're um, helping move them through that decision-making process using that content. So that's a, that's a great sort of bolt-on or augment to, mm-hmm. to the foundations of Challenger. Um, other things, the idea of, so if you think about a choreography of conversation as a challenger, you start with reframing their thinking or, you know, challenging their status quo thinking, but then you have to magnify the impact of the problem you've just uncovered. And you do that in two ways. You do that in a rational way by providing a business case for change, showing them what the cost of status quo is versus the cost of doing something different and the Delta there. But you also do it in an emotional way mm-hmm. by having well-prepared, well-rehearsed stories and anecdotes, examples that you share with them. Why? Because stats and figures can stick in certain people's minds, but the vast majority of people really appreciate and retain a powerful narrative, mm-hmm. a personally relevant story. And so you want to have both of those in the argument. And we've seen, particularly in the current environment, you know, kind of a growing interest in and importance of those nuanced elements of challenger. Yeah, we t- tend to talk about uh, pathos, logos, and ethos being part of how you convince that person to change. You know, make sure you spur them on with emotion, make sure you justify the change with logic, and make sure that there's trust that's built so they know that that's a warm feeling when they're ready to move, that they're ready to do it, and there's nothing holding them back. I, you know, Tom, I'm really glad you said that because I, I've long said the same thing. I mean, it's interesting. This goes back to Aristotle's. I know, 2,600 right? years ago, right? It goes all the way back to the Greeks and why we haven't adopted that type of uh, argument, that type of structure to our sales process until now is beyond me. And I think it's because for so long we were distracted by ourselves mm-hmm. and by the desire to promote ourselves to customers or to, um, kind of pressure customers into acting the way we would want them to act. It's a very self-interested way of of presenting yourself. But when you think about what Aristotle was really trying to teach around persuasion is it's, you know, engaging with the person, it's meeting the person on the level that they're on, right? Um, And making making it more about them, right? Than about you. So exactly. Shifted the focus and then also, I think it was an understanding that we really don't make decisions consciously for the most part. Uh, Conscious decision-making is still a part of the equation. Let's say 25%, but 75% of it is this emotional and trust component, which is unconscious. It is. And it's interesting. I've been going back through Ogilvy on advertising, which is a Mm -hmm. book I've I've loved for a long time. And, And one of the things in that book that David Ogilvy states that I think it's really important to consider. And I've been sharing this in a lot of conversations that I've been having with people is he, he says, you know, consumers, and I think um, buying groups and Forrester would argue this today very strongly. And I agree with them that buying groups today act like a group of B2B buying groups act like a group of consumers. Mm-hmm. And so you can learn a lot studying consumers and applying that to B2B buying groups. But he says those buying groups, they don't act in a purely rational way, which would be you know, I choose A over B because A is better, mm-hmm. but more they choose uh, A because they are more certain that it is good. Mm-hmm. 
And it's that certainty that is the, is the goal of a seller calling into a complex B2B buying group. How do I build collective certainty to action among that, that group? And if you have lack of certainty, that's what creates uh, delays in a buying journey. Like you were saying, that's what creates this high frequency of no decision at mm -hmm. the end of a complex B2B buying journey where they don't choose anybody. They just say, you know what, let's just put the brakes on this non-essential. Let's come back and readdress this later. You really have to be thinking about in constructing your argument, in delivering your argument, in supporting that buying group. Are we creating sufficient certainty that we are good, that they'll be motivated to take a new action? Yeah, so Spencer, like when I used to look at the weight of emotion, logic, and trust before, um, when times are good, I was looking at emotion being like a 50% motivator. Like unless you spurred someone on, they were just gonna stick with status quo because things are going well, they're, they're good. Um, and then trust was like 25% and logic was 25%. And those are just estimates and kind of representations. It's not exactly that, but that was kind of my waiting. And that's where I, I felt like when Challenger launched, it really hit on that place. Like you gotta get people who are emotionally motivated to move. Now that we're in a time of uncertainty, stress, doubt, all of those kind of things, I think it's shifted a little bit. And I think your research is evolving um, and your methodology is evolving to suit um, where now 50% is trust. It's that certainty piece that you're looking to do. 25% is still emotion. I mean, you still have to upset the status quo um, in a collaborative, cooperative way to kind of get them moving. And you do have to justify it. But now that certainty and, and sense-making and uh, kind of helping, facilitating, all of those things become really important to make sure that the decision is a certain one that they can count on when there's so much else in the world that they can't count on. Well, that's right. And, and I think um, you, you build certainty with, like, like we've been saying, right, with both a logos and a pathos argument. You have to have your numbers relevant mm -hmm. um, and, and strong, and you have to have a story or an anecdote or an example that is relevant to them as well. Now, one thing you have to realize, I think, and this is the hard part, is there's a big tall wall around the castle today. Mm -hmm. And that, that big tall wall around the castle is there for multiple reasons. Number one, it's because this buying group has a lot of scrutiny on their spend, right? Mm -hmm. They're only looking at things that are essential. They're evaluating, prioritizing every spend category, all of that. And number two is they're in their safe space and they stay in their safe space with COVID. They don't go into travel mode. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. interesting because from a marketing perspective, one of the things I didn't appreciate until it was taken away was the idea of getting a customer into a neutral space to teach them something new. So that could be at a trade show or some kind of a conference, right? People aren't insulated in their, their home space. Or even if you think about like medical device and pharmaceutical, just catching somebody in a hallway between mm -hmm. consultations, catching that medical professional in a hallway, that is a neutral space. And now we're having to go somehow penetrate inside their safe space in their home office. And it's much easier for them to be distracted, to tune out our messages. And our messages have to be all the more rationally and emotionally compelling to capture their attention, to get to uh, um, attach with their um, 
what do I want to say? Like level one or system one thinking, you know, mm -hmm. if you go to Daniel Kahneman, yes, like, absolutely. have to put something in front of them that is compelling. And, and what happens, and I think the mistake a lot of sellers make is they come in with the very elaborate, complex, deep system two mm -hmm. related message and nobody pays any attention to it. Yeah. Or they After get overwhelmed by it more quickly than ever before, right? Exactly. They get overwhelmed by it. So you have to think about what is that simple, clear articulation of the logos and pathos that I can put in there that's going to spark that attention and generate that interest to learn more. And it's tricky to do. It is yeah. not easy. It's a um, it's not sort of something people have a natural gift to do unless they're just a rare, very, you know, well gifted um, type of engaging personality something you have to work on and perfect and strengthen over time. Yeah. Simplicity sometimes can be hard and exactly. making sure you're hitting on those triggers that are foundational to your buyer, making sure you understand them and are hitting on those triggers can be difficult to create. Now, what I want to do is before we forget, you mentioned there are these five criteria, but I think something else really struck me and struck me in the research um, that these five criteria and sellers that leverage those five criteria are really successful, but buyers are seeing kind of a regression along these five criteria where they're not exactly happy right now with what they're getting from sellers, right? That's, that's exactly right. So they're seeing, um, for example, the demonstrating unique insight component, they, um, that skill or characteristic in the eyes of buyers is down 52%. Yeah, so they're stunning. rating of that skill on the average. Uh, helping buyers make decisions down 34, seller understanding of stakeholder interest down 41, helping buyers build support down 49, making it easier for the buyer to buy down 30. Uh, so on average, you know, that's about a 40% drop. That's um, a huge gap. Yeah. It is a huge gap. And again, I think it's, it, it's a combination of a couple of things, right? They're in their safe space. So they mm -hmm. expect more. There's it, you, they, that message that's going to penetrate to them needs to be all the stronger, they're distracted, they're, you know, they're less able to take action on their own, they're not looking to take action. So there's more of that resistance there. Mm -hmm. And I also think um, part of this is from 2017 to 2019, in those real boom years that we had before this correction and this, this new environment, a lot of organizations were growing super fast, and they were adding a lot of junior, very green sales talent to their bench. Yeah. And these individuals, never encountered a situation where they had to go out there and establish demand, like spark initial interest. They were responding to a large amount of, you know, inbound leads and organic buying groups that had formed and said, we've got the budget, we've got the empowerment to make a decision. We're going to make a decision. It just depends on whom. Mm -hmm. And that's not the situation now. And so I think sellers are uh, buyers have, are waking up to the fact of like, look, we have very junior, very inexperienced salespeople trying to convince us, trying to change our minds. And we're not particularly impressed by what we see. Yeah, that's a shame. There definitely was this commoditization of sellers that had occurred. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the death of the B2B sales rep was highly touted and held up in many a hiring meetings. So they went out and hired junior folks. And, and I agree when you're, when you're, you have to win the shootout or take the order. That's one skill set. When you have to go in and establish the need, 
with a buying group and, and then facilitate a, an ever more complex journey that they have to go on. That's a hell of a lot of, a, of skills that are required of a junior or someone that hasn't been trained for a year or more in this. That's right. Yeah, definitely so. So do you think it's more the buyer has elevated expectations, the sellers are falling short? Um, I know there's not a lot we can do about the buyer's elevated expectations. They are what they are. So what, what's the recommendation? How do, we, how do we overcome this? How do we get those five skills back up so that they're meeting or exceeding buyer expectations? Yeah, well, look, I think it's, it's an organizational and an individual return to fundamentals. And you've seen a lot of the thought leaderships. Dave Brock is one who just you know, comes to mind yeah, immediately because he, he blogs about this quite a bit. And there's a lot of others. I think Mitch Little has done a lot of great uh, blogging about this, who very notable senior sales leader over at uh, Microchip. Um, the, what they keep talking about, I think it's really important is at an individual and at an organizational level, we've got to go back to this fundamental of um, appreciating the customer, understanding the customer, kind of speaking in a way, presenting in a way that is uh, prospecting in a way that's relevant to that customer. And I, I think it goes back, Tom, to two things I was talking about earlier, which are mistakes we can make um, in, this, in this environment when we're not getting that, building that credibility uh, with buyers or buying groups is we can just push our self-interest harder, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna work harder, I'm gonna promote myself harder to these customers. And I, I think that's a, that's a field of the path you want to be on. And, and another um, area field of that path is to be too aggressive or to, to push too hard, even if the idea you have or the concept you have is relevant and good to the customer. You've got to think about the way you package it, the way yeah. you present it. Are you showing correct empathy? Are you being helpful? Are you being respectful? Um, in building both rapport and credibility uh, with that buyer. So it's, yeah. it's really going back, making sure you have a fundamental concept or an idea that's relevant to the customer that you can articulate well and, and you know, prove the point with data and, and anecdote. And then just you know, practicing good, powerful, persuasive delivery of that, of that argument. Yeah, I think adding value from that first engagement and putting it in terms of the buyer terms or a buyer first kind of mentality is important. And then I, there's this other term I used in uh, performance driving, which is, you know, when you're going into a corner, sometimes you got to go in slow to come out fast. And I think that you're espousing that as well, right? Sometimes you can be too aggressive in these times and that's not helpful. Right. And, and I, I also think you need to be humble in a sense that, um, and, and let me explain why in particular, because we did, uh, we've done this series of poll surveys uh, mm -hmm. about every month or so across since, since COVID started to really just keep a really tight watch on what's happening in the buying and selling environment. And one of our more recent ones, I think it was our Pulse 11, was really interesting because we were, we were asking um, sales leaders and sales enablement leaders and such um, who had the most relevance to a buyer and, and like, uh, what percentage of them thought, uh, you know, would weight different kind of stakeholders as the most relevant to buyers in making a decision. 
Well, salespeople themselves are about 12%. So 12% of kind of senior sales leaders and people around the industry think it's the seller who is most relevant in helping the buyer make that decision. 34% saw it as peers and colleagues and 21% direct reports and team members. Now, what that tells us is, and I think this is a pretty obvious point when you think about it, is individuals inside the customer's organization, inside the castle walls, have a lot more credibility to decision makers than we outside do. And we have to recognize that. And that's why as like articulate, as dynamic, as gregarious as we may be, like we have to respect the fact that they will, they have a natural amount of trust and um, respect for individuals who are inside the organization more so than they do us. So our goal is to identify, and we call this the mobilizer, right? And in our research is identify those individuals in the customer's organization who will most connect with and and get most excited about what we have to offer Mm -hmm. and then use those individuals opportunistically to build consensus, feed them the arguments, feed them the data, feed them the anecdotes and use them because they have that greater degree of credibility. Yeah, and help them make sense of the available solutions that are out there. Help them comes make back sense to the sense of, maker thing, right? Yeah, help exactly. them make sense of the value that can be delivered. And I mean, that's near and dear to my heart in terms of you know how much is it costing you by doing nothing, and what's the value of change. And I think as well, coming in your research, near and dear to my heart as well, is the quantification of that business value is becoming important, particularly to the CFNO and the COVID committee. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And and make sure that business case is simple and can be articulated by somebody else, not in your presence. What you don't want to do is is arm somebody with a very complex, nuanced business case that makes sense to you. And then they start to get pushback from a CFO or from other stakeholders in the organization. And they're turning to you and you're not there because it's going to be hard for you to be there in this full virtual selling environment. So you've got to make sure it's simple enough, clear enough that they can articulate it and defend it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a spreadsheet this thick down to the 10th decimal point. And we always say, you know, those numbers that are in there anyway, they need to be simple, it needs to be straightforward, needs to focus just on the challenges that you're looking to solve that the buyer cares about. And it needs to have a story that drives the whole thing. And the numbers are there to support the story, not the other way around. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree yeah. with that. And, and we spoke earlier about the power of storytelling. Now, I, I mentioned the death of the B2B sales rep. We were all there, or at least I, I was in the audience when um, that research was presented. Um, it was a B2B sales conference, and they spoke uh, immediately about the death of the B2B sales rep. And we're all looking at each other like, why are we here if this is a dying profession, right? <laughs> I think your research is saying that, okay, even though the internal influence is high, you know, the selling experience that is delivered is by the solution provider is still vital, right? I mean, B2B sales isn't dead or, or Spencer, are you an advocate of that? And so tell me what your research is saying about the importance of sellers going forward. Yeah, well, look, our, our, our research indicates that, that the most critical things important to buyers are uh, relate directly to the gifts and the skills that sellers bring to them. And there's a very important reason why that is. I think uh, you can say that um, 
yeah, the, the sort of um, human element of the salesperson is dead if you're living in a kind learning environment, right? So a robot can beat Gary Kasparov in chess 100% of the time, right? Because um, chess is a closed, simple, um, kind learning environment. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a finite number of, of steps and it's all just a matter of yeah, moves. It's a finite game, right? Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, selling and human to human interaction, and we are human beings making decisions, we're human beings buying and selling, is a wicked learning environment. And some people describe that as akin to what's called Martian tennis, right? Where <laughs> you're not really sure of what the rules are and those you do get a handle on constantly change. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what it is. And, and um, selling will always be this meritocracy of good ideas and good performance and good persuasion, just like making movies or other forms of art is a meritocracy of good ideas and good writing and good acting and good performing. There is always an opportunity for somebody to bring, create something new and different and better and special that people really like are attracted to. And, and I think that's the way we need to think about it. I think you can get a certain level of efficiency and um, effectiveness in a program by using tools and by using systems and, and structures and processes and all of that. There's, there's some good there. But if you're really looking at what differentiates the real high performers, and we've done some research about this in the last few years that we think is really interesting, what really makes them stand out, it's much more the quality of the creation of the argument Mm -hmm. and the delivery of the argument than it is um, adherence to some program or, or system. Yeah. I think the program and the system lets it scale, hopefully beyond just those one or two top performers. But I agree with you. I think the thing that jazzes me about selling is just the co-creation and the collaboration with the customer. And um, that's some of what I think you're hitting on is uh, I think what makes me hopefully a good seller when I'm, when I'm out there doing that part of my job. And uh, what I certainly enjoy the most is creating something special for that customer, whether that be finding that problem they didn't know about or, you know, creating the art of the possible for them out of what they thought was impossible. It's those things that I think, you know, get me up in the morning and make selling fun. Yeah. And there's some people, you know, who have kind of natural gifts uh, for all of that, who can, you know, get to a place of high competence really fast with what seems like minimal effort. But I think a lot of people, and this is something that we need to keep in mind, require Mm-hmm. Uh, practice and refining and feedback and in strengthening over time to get to a point where they can they can do that they can create those arguments however you deliver them right emails mm-hmm. um, short web videos live conversations virtual conversations um, and it's just through practice and refinement that they make it look easy and natural yeah totally agree so what is the one piece of advice, if you had to pull it all together, that you'd like to leave our Evolvers community with today, Spencer? Yeah, so look, there's two things I've been, I've been thinking about. It res- relates to that. And we've touched on both of them. One, I think the first a lot more than the second, but I'll, I'll touch on both of them just one more time. And number one, really dig into storytelling, as you've been saying. And um, that's, that's critical to be able to um, weave your argument uh, your quantitative argument, whatever else is involved in it into a narrative that's going to stick in the head of the customers. 
And I mean, good comedians do this all the time, right? There's a hundred bad ways to tell a joke. And there's usually one really good way to tell mm -hmm. that joke. And they make it look easy and natural. And anybody can hop up on a stage and do comedy like that. It's not. It's years of effort and working through and refining down and simplifying those jokes to make them, you know, uh, resonate in exactly the right way. And you've got to do, you've got to put in similar effort in refining and developing your storytelling. So put in that effort to get storytelling right. I think it'll pay off for you in spades in the current environment. And the second is, so back when we did the original Challenger research, it was interesting because um, we had talked about the relationship builder model, not aligning to high performance back then, right? You can't rely on social relationships to get by. It's got to be the professional relationship with the commercial insight. I think there's a new um, type of, call it profile or way of selling that we need to be concerned about in the current environment. And I call that the um, quote unquote, I'm here to help um, mm -hmm. or put me to work seller. So I've done um, some work personally in disaster cleanup. And one of the things that's most frustrating when you're in there mucking out a house after a hurricane is those individuals standing around going, I'm here to help, put me to work. You know, I'm here to help. And it's like, you know, we're trying to get this house done. We're trying to do all these particular things. It's, we can't stop and figure out how to, you know, how teach you, you yeah. to do mm -hmm. a particular thing. We need you to point out something that needs to be done and have the kind of expertise and the experience to say, hey, look, I can take that and, and handle that. And I think there's a lot of sellers who have the best of intentions these days. They want to, they're showing that willingness to get in there, help the customer solve problems, but they're kind of saying, hey, I'm here to help. I'm you know, here to support you however you need. That's not what customers need today. What customers need today is that seller who comes in and says, look, here's a particular issue I notice is going on. Here's what I would suggest we do with it. Here's how I'm going to help make that happen. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of um, attitude and action that these buying groups really appreciate. Yeah. And I say, Spencer, even get in there and do some of it, right? I'll yeah. just do it proactively for them and show them what's possible and then do a little bit more. And do it. so I, I'm finding that you know, getting these jumpstart or proof of concept things going quickly for the customer can help. Obviously, you, you need to make sure they're qualified before you do that. But I think the more you can actually do instead of just offering the help, sometimes the better and totally agree on the storytelling and your last story about the hurricane relief and how you frame that is a case in point of how folks, I think, will remember that analogy uh, going forward. You have this research. It's fantastic. Spencer, where can folks find that research and leverage it? And where can they find you? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, first of all, everything we do, we put on LinkedIn. So our first recommendation would be follow uh, Challenger, mm -hmm. our organization on LinkedIn. That's the first and best place. It's also at our website, um, www.challengerinc.com. Me personally, uh, Spencer Wixom, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm trying to share my thoughts and ideas as much as I can and would love to connect with people and, and have further conversation with them. We will include both of those links in the show notes. And I can tell you, I use the research. I'm writing about it. I use it in my uh, presentations um, and it, it resonates really well. So Spencer, thank you so much for all your insights and the new uh, research and giving us your point of view on it and, and 
creating clarity for everyone on the actions they can take to be successful in 2021, understanding these changing buying trends and the five elements that uh, characteristics that uh, buyers really care about, that sellers, if you step forward and overcome that 40% gap, you will have a distinct competitive advantage. Uh, thanks for Spencer making the Evolvers a great and growing community. Oh, my pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you. And until next time, Evolvers, keep evolving.